This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner and Momenta Partners, and welcome to our Digital Leadership Series. In this series of conversations, we're highlighting some of the best and brightest minds and practitioners in the business as we focus on their journeys into digital transformation, what they learned, what their successes were, what the challenges were, along with lessons that are relevant for you today. We hope you enjoy our explorations and get value from it. And always, we look for your feedback and suggestions. Good day, everyone. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners. And today we have a very special guest uh, in our digital leadership series. And our guest today is Bill Rue, who is currently the CEO of Digital Business at Lend Lease, which is a global developer and construction company for high rise and, uh, and, and real estate development. Uh, Bill has a, a long and, and prominent career in connected industry and digital transformation. Previously, he was the chief digital officer for all of GE, as well as the uh, CEO for GE Digital. And we're thrilled to have you join us today, Bill. And uh, he's speaking to us from from Sydney, Australia. Uh, but would love to get a uh, you know just just get a little bit of a sense about what you know what's what's brought you here. And uh, talk first, talk a bit about what's what's shaped your view of the. Uh, of what we call the Internet of Things. Well, well, thanks, Ed, and it's it's great to be on. You know, I I recently uh, moved from the states, from the Bay Area here to Sydney, which gives you a different total, you know, view of what hap- what's happening globally in this whole IoT arena. But the main thing I can say is, and and I've seen this, is it's a it's a global play. It's not for just mature markets. We see it in um, in developing markets, and in some cases, developing markets are can be very innovative with technology. But you know, we're if I just look at you know when my career going back to my days at Cisco, where I really first saw this from the networking perspective, the early days of people just connecting things. Um, you know, I, I would say I thought that the you know those early days of say uh, 29 to 2011. It was a very much an experimentation mode. Then coming to, to GE from 2011 until 2018, what what I saw was the maturing of that market and people starting to turn it into businesses. And 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 so we started to see that it became more than a technology, it became a business model. And a lot of it was, can I just take data off of big, uh, complex machines? that are needed in our everyday lives and we expect 100% guarantees from, you know, whether that's a utility or an elevator or, uh, you know, a, um, a jet aircraft engine, uh, we expect the, everything to always work. And the ability to change and have unscheduled, uh, you know, zero unscheduled downtime, nothing breaks uh, in a way that causes problems is probably the, the cornerstone of what we're seeing in terms of where people are getting value. But I think now what we're starting to see the shift is where uh, IoT is now moving from called the, the let's make what we have work better to let's create new kinds of experiences. And in fact, let's change the nature of work 
by using this technology. So in many respects, the uh, the role of what we initially thought of as IoT is as just connecting devices and and using the data derived from connected assets you know, to improve business processes is morphing more broadly and into this concept of digital transformation. And it's become kind of a popular term, but I'd love to get your your take on what what the term digital transformation means to you. You know, in in context of this this evolution of of Internet of Things. Yeah, I, I view this idea of digital transformation in, in in the following way. And depending on who you talk to, you're going to get a different answer that's actually very similar to everybody else. And what I mean by that, it's like the old story of the three blind men and the elephant, where everyone is touching a different part of the elephant. And when they, they're asked to describe it, you know, one has the tail, and he says, well, it's a rope, and one has the, the trunk, and he, he says, well, it's a fire hose, and one has the leg, oh, it's a tree trunk. In other words, depending on the technology we approach digital transformation from is how we define it. So if you're in the AI game, digital transformation is all about AI and data. If you're in the IoT game, you're really talking about connected machines because that's where a lot of this data is, is coming from. And, and and so on. So when you think about digital transformation, it's a it's it's being led. It's technology led for sure. Without the technology, we wouldn't see the disruption occurring. But um, it's more than one technology. So when you start looking at IoT and connectivity and data, you know you want to build an outcome. You want to do something with it. It's not just there to connect. And and that's where IoT has always failed is anybody who just connected is sort of been commoditized. So you really, you're really talking about the outcomes you can generate off of that. Well, then that brings in the idea of AI. Well, the amount of data you're talking about, you know, you suddenly see the cloud as playing an important part of this game. And so when I look at digital transformation, I think there's sort of a set of table stakes, technologies that are that complete, let's say, elephant. That's you got to be thinking about big data. You got to be thinking of cloud, AI, machine learning. It's all about mobile delivery. That's how people work. You've got to think about the open source capabilities that sit under this, whether it's Docker or Kubernetes or so on, and the ability to manage this scale uh, and so on. The that's sort of the table stakes technology. Then I just say there's a whole set of other technology that's going to continue this. And that's why this digital transformation's got a lot of legs, 20 more years, because you're talking about, uh, you know, natural language processing and where, where is Siri and Alexa and all those technologies going to fit in? Where is uh, edge compute going to come in? Drones and bots and robotics, AR, VR, 3D manufacturing, blockchain, autonomous systems. All of that technology is over the horizon. And as much as the people working in that, you know, are, are think every day about it, it's still not in the mainstream as those other things are. So what you look at all this technology, that's the cornerstone of enabling digital transformation. And only companies that can master, let's say, a heavy set of that are going to be able to, uh, to play in this game. No doubt. I think we're very much on the cusp of some exciting we call it combinatorial innovation, but it's uh, you know, enormous potential ahead of us. 
Um, but if if we dial the clock back a bit, I'd love to uh, uh, understand a bit of of your experience as you know, really being at the nexus of the what we, what a lot of people think about the industrial IoT. I mean, what uh, you came into GE at just I mean, as as GE was putting together the, a, a Predix platform and and. Uh, started articulating this vision that just resonated hugely across the industry of, you know, the power of 1% and, and just thematically uh, really helping the, the market get it, wrap its arms around this, this massive transformation. You know, could you talk about what it was like for you to, uh, you know, to come to a, uh, you know, a leader in what we'll call in tr- traditional industrial technologies um, and and really look to apply and establish, you know, the vision of where you wanted to take the uh, take the business and, and and also really break through some you know, some uh, some uncharted waters. Yeah, you know, I was uh, I was very fortunate to be able to work at uh, a great company as, as GE, and I I I I really I mean I still really love that company. Um, so when you look at it, though, GE and GE has always been a leader at driving these kinds of transformations in the market that require innovation. And, you know, the thing that I would say that I learned very early on at GE, as opposed to when I was coming from Cisco, where I had a very technology centric view of this IoT space, is that the business needs uh, were uh, pretty profound. And there were really three things that I could sort of boil down that what we saw at, at, in, over that period of time at GE that we were trying to address. And I think GE through predicts and what it's done is addressed the big part of this is one is it, the, the shocking thing to me was industrial productivity was essentially flat, 0% productivity gains for something like five or six years. Uh, we came out of the recession, we saw activity gains, and then it just stopped. And I, I think one could look and say that essentially the traditional methods are no longer good enough to drive productivity. And so productivity really needed a reboot. That's that power of 1%. And it doesn't matter what industrial sector you're talking about. You're just not seeing the gains, except in those companies that are really beginning to use digital and data and analytics to foundationally change their business processes. So it's no longer, hey, I'm just going to apply Six Sigma and Lean and, you know, those traditional techniques. They've run their course. It doesn't mean you stop doing those. But if you don't add digital to that, if you don't automate and make things more autonomous, you're never going to get the productivity gains that are necessary to compete in the next generation. So the first thing was Productivity, it's all about productivity. The second thing is that if you begin to look at tech firms slightly differently, which we did, as to what makes them successful, I don't think they look at themselves this way. But we realized that leaders in digital are tied to asset optimization and better outcomes. And what do I mean by this? Well, essentially, Google takes advertising and if you look at advertising as an asset, as much as the Jettercraft engine is an asset, look, they, they found a better way to deliver and optimize that asset. And, and that's what, that propelled them. 
Um, if you think about uh, Apple, I look at them differently. They figured out a better way to deliver and consume applications, and applications being an asset. Uber and taxis, Airbnb and hotel rooms. So you begin to realize that the world is moving to asset optimization, whether those are hard assets or those are soft assets, uh, virtual assets. But every asset we have in the world is being optimized. And that's really core to what's going on. The third thing we learned is that the future is not just digital. And this is what really, I think, opens the door for traditional companies to go in in this, is that it used to be just the digital world. Advertising was, well, you could do it all digitally. And, but when you get to things like the airline industry or you, you get to the power industry, you get to the construction industry, you get to you know, uh, smart uh, you know, water systems and so on, all of these things have a physical component. The future is also about those who can combine physical and digital. And you, know, you look at Tesla is a combination of physical and digital. SpaceX is a combination of physical and digital. And I'd even say Amazon with retail logistics has mastered physical and digital combined. And so the world is going to be for those who master physical and digital. So you've got to reboot productivity. You've got to be good at optimizing assets and changing your processes. And you've got to be good at combining the physical and digital worlds in order to compete going forward. That's going to be the center of value. So – when you're in a company like GE, I mean, is, is did you have a process that uh, that you applied to assess where your know, changes occurring, you know, outside of the organization, and you know how best to map your efforts uh, to to improve the impact on on your own business, uh, you know, the organization, but also uh, also the rest of the market and 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 your customers. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, what I've learned uh, over over the last uh, 15 years through my transition, Cisco, GE, Len Lees, is that um, what you do in a startup is going to be very different than what you do in a big company to manage through these transitions. Um, and the way, you know, I, I think about it is there's a couple of key things. The first thing is that, a, you know, a, a startup gets to act in one speed, startup speed. And you know, everything is focused on that transformational activity and uh, all the investments, all the people, they see the goal. And so they act in with disruptive speed, uh, which is, is fast. You don't worry about the, the, the current state of the status quo. And then the, 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 the other thing is you can, uh, you, know, you can change the rules. Well, when you're in a big company, it doesn't quite work that way. You actually have to have two corresponding processes in order to make it work in a big company. And they operate at different speeds. And so speed one, I view, is, look, you've got to be able to, to deliver on you know, this productivity gain near term. How do you change the processes? Uh, how do I take analytics? And it's more what I call incremental or evolutionary uh, improvement. Thousands of analytics, hundreds of automated processes, take what I do today and in weeks to months to deploy, uh, focus on getting these kind of things done. Now, by the way, that is digital transformation. 
it's just it's, it's aimed at trying to transition you from the old into the new. It, use, it, it still requires talent and a culture shift, but it enables your existing businesses to be able to get in and see value, and you, it, it aligns to that quarter-to-quarter mentality. While you're doing that, you also need speed two activities. These are the disruptive platforms uh, that you're trying to create, the things where you're trying to get a leading position and change the nature of the game. And you can't go do thousands of analytics and hundreds of automated processes to disrupt. You're going to focus on a platform to get out there and change the world. And in order to get something major like that done, it's uh, 12 to 18 months to deploy. a tech firm to win. It takes them 10 years before they get to the kind of scale and momentum that makes them so successful. So you've got to realize that you're in it for a longer term. Uh, How you judge it is very different. So in a big company, the the thing that's important is you've got to realize you've got speed one and speed two activities. You've got to have a portfolio of both. And one is evolutionary, one is revolutionary. And you've got to be able to get the leadership and the people in there to get behind both simultaneously and make sure they're supportive of both in the right way. So you don't roll your disruptive thing across your business and disrupt your business because you're going to disrupt your quarter-to-quarter numbers. On the other hand, you don't say, oh, those guys lose money. They never do anything. What you do is you try to get a few things going, the initial pilot, then embed in the business. Make sure you, you take care of it. And I think that's what I really learned is you've got to have both simultaneously. The last thing I would just say on this is, you know, there's a, the, the real challenge for a comp, big company is they all, you know, you either want to like have all the traditional people in the company become digital or you say, okay, we're going to nurture digital out separately. And that neither of those work very well. You've got to, really lean into the fact that you need new digital natives, the new tech stack and the new IP and the new disruptive things. You need digital migrants from the existing base for domain knowledge, translation, lay the groundwork for adoption. And you need all your employees to become digitally enabled. So you've got to lean into the organizational structure, which quite honestly, of all the things I found, that's really the hardest is to get the structured talent organization culture uh, changing to accept speed one and speed two, embrace it and make it successful. That's a great insight, Bill. And and this con- with this concept of speed one and speed two, you know, how do you appropriately set the goals for for digital transformation initiatives so that so that your your objectives are aligned, but you don't uh, you don't, for instance, you don't overshoot your, uh, your expectations, uh, you know, for the, for the short term, uh, or I, I would say create unrealistic expectations, but then, but then also have, uh, enough stretch goals. And I guess in speed too, that, you know, that you get people inspired and, and really focused on the, on the big picture. Yeah. Well, every digital initiative has to be tied to a specific metric in order for it to succeed in a big uh, company. And, uh, you know, if you think about a startup, they, they, you know, the moonshots, right? They, they take the moonshots. Um, most moonshots, at least my impression, and I think the data backs it up, fail, right? 
and it's okay in Silicon Valley. I mean, there's a, a, a culture of failure uh, and acceptance of moonshot failures, uh, which doesn't exist in a in a big company. So, getting back to that speed one, speed two, your speed one, you've got to establish it's evolutionary. So they have to have very specific metrics. But I would say they can be maybe not moonshot metrics, but but you know, how about lower uh, orbit around the Earth kind of metrics, right? Still big, hairy uh, goals. Like, you know, can I in, improve my utilization rate or my reliability rate or uh, minimize my downtime rate by 10%? You know, those sound easy, but that's worth a lot of money to any company. And the question is, okay, can I find the analytic or automate the processes that are going to get me there? And so you're picking very specific, you know, metrics, and you're trying to make them achievable, but, but you actually want to pick something that's measurable and, and, and hard to do. And I, I think that that's, that you've got to tie it to those kind of metrics. Otherwise, it become science experiments or technology plays that, you know, that there's a, a disconnect to the end user. And the end user cares about minimizing downtime or productivity or energy savings or something. And you've got to connect it to them there because that focuses your mind on solving the right kind of problems. On speed two, I think you've got to have the kind of goals we're talking about, but now you're talking about moonshot kind of goals where you really are trying to foundationally change the nature of the business you're in that you're talking about a, you know, uh, you know, 50% uh, productivity, or I think the way, you know, the, the, the Valley really looks at this is a, a 10X play. If you're not getting an order of magnitude shift in the, those moonshots, or you're not targeting an order of magnitude shift, you are not aiming high enough. And I think that that is a little, is a struggle often for bigger companies to be able to accept that, and, but then transition that into what you do, execution. But the only other thing I'll mention is think about how many moonshots you know, are talked about in the Valley, and then think about how many actually end up accomplishing something meaningful. But when you win, you win big. So you gotta, you got, you know, that's a, you gotta do that to win in your industry for 10 years, but you've still gotta have these near-term things. So speed one, speed two, you gotta keep in mind which one you're doing, and the metric shift, and you've got to be willing to have the sort of stomach to get behind them uh, in the right way. If you compare and contrast the, you know, the the the, the Silicon Valley moonshot mindset with the uh, with the objectives of a big company, um, you know, how do you how do you measure your success or progress so that so that you can course correct midstream if, if if necessary, right? Because the you know the the expense or the potential cost of something, you know, headed down the wrong path for a while uh, can be pretty extensive. Uh, you know, are, are there any any best practices or, uh, or or thoughts that you have on on being able to course correct if, if something's not going as as planned? Well, you know, I always uh, feel that growth growth covers a lot of uh, a lot of sin, right? I mean, if you're growing, you can feel, you know, that You've got to be growing, I think, is is the, the, really the medicine for these speed two activities, uh, these moonshots. If you don't have some way to ensure that you've got uptake of what you're doing, customers are 
uh, applying it. And it doesn't mean they're they're you know they're sort of all in, but they are beginning to utilize this in a meaningful way so that you can begin to grow what you're doing. I think the second thing is you've always you've always got to keep in mind that you know in the end you're you know you don't really go against perfection. You got to go against the market. You got to say, hey, you know, I'm going to be number one or number two in what I'm doing in this moonshot, and then be able to judge: Are you number one or number two out in the market? Because if you're number one or number two against your competitors and you're growing, you can see a path to where you've got to get to. The only last thing is, is you know, is it feasible? That to me is for a moonshot. You've got to. It's, you know, you've got to be able to fish or cut bait on the idea that the technology is feasible, it's cost effective, you can scale the business. And I think the, uh, the ability to know the tech, you know, a great idea without the right technology that's too early is the same as being wrong. So you've got to make sure that the technology is feasible to create your moonshot. You've got to make sure you got the talent to get there. But if you can judge that you're number one and you're growing, then I think you can show that you can win this. But that's why the, you know, it's a different process for that S2. You got to have the stomach to go 10 years. And, you know, I love companies like, uh, uh, you know, you got to admire a company like Amazon where AWS, you know, they went, they had that, they grew it over time. But they weren't uh, publicly announcing the numbers for a very long time. And I think that, you know, that's, that's a smart company. That's a company committed to, to, to building a market and, and owning something and being number one. And I think that is a good model for bigger companies to emulate and look at and say, okay, they do something, and, you know, we should be able to, to try to emulate yeah, that's not a uh, really a trivial undertaking, particularly for a public company. If you look at, you know, a company like SpaceX, for instance, which has had uh, many, many years of uh, experimentation and and uh, how shall we say, you know, less than successful uh, moonshots. You know, it it, it is it's it, it really is uh, can can be a, a daunting task to you know to pull off these long term <laughs> goals, right? Um, you know, when you, it, you, it is you, a daunting, if it's not a daunting task, you're probably not doing a moonshot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> you know, you had, you'd uh, alluded to the challenges of organizing, you know, uh, talent and you know, and the organization, organizational structure. Um, you know, how do you how do you do, have you thought about? Uh, for for one, evaluating the, the the structure of an existing business that's about to undertake a um, big big transformation, and ensuring that the the organization's appropriately structured for for digital change. Um, I would love to get yeah. your thoughts on on building an organization and some of those considerations there. Yeah, you know, it's the same problem whether it's a startup or it's a uh, a big company. It's just that. The big company has a lot more challenges to accomplish it. Look, these uh, these digital businesses are a team sport. Meaning, if I'm a startup, you know, you get every you the people you hire, everybody gets behind what you're trying to do, and the ones that succeed are the ones where they're they are maniacal 
laser-like focus on accomplishing their mission. Everybody's pulling together. That doesn't mean you don't have the normal, you know, tension of, of having groups working together. But when you get groups working together in a startup, you go so fast that you can just outrun others and win. And so, you know, that coupled with you got to have the right talent, what makes these small startups scary is just the brain power and the capability. So they can go fast, they're focused, they got great talent. Well, uh, and it's a team sport. Everybody understands what they're trying to do and is able to play. It's the same in a big company, but the problem is that you have to do it at a totally different scale. And what makes it hard is that, you know, you've got to be able to bring the whole company along. You've got to get them moving in that direction or you never, you never see the benefit. So that's what I'm saying. It's, it's a different process of what you do than a startup in that you need first, you got to be committed to bringing in the right talent from the outside. Let's call that the digital natives for the new tech stack, for the new business models, for the, uh, the, the ability to challenge the status quo and have a vision for, you know, that big S2 goal that you're going to try to accomplish. The second thing, though, is it cannot be done in a vacuum because it's hard. I, I can't really point to a company that's separated it out and it worked well, where the company itself became better as a result. The ones you see is where they're able to make it work together. Um, and so you need digital migrants from the domain knowledge, the ability to translate, the ability to lay the groundwork for adoption within the existing set of businesses. Um, and if you don't establish those migrants early on, um, then you, 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 know, you don't have these two groups able to effectively work together. Over time, you really got to think about how 14,000 employees become digitally enabled. Now, I have a theory on this part, which is, look, everybody, every employee I ever walk, I, I talk to, they have a mobile phone. They have a ton of apps on it. They know how to do all that. And what is amazing to me is big companies often forget that's their channel to their employees. So embrace it. I don't care whether it's iOS or Android. Make sure you're delivering your capability to your end um, employees so that they are enabled because they are ready to embrace it. I've never seen where they're, they're like not willing to in any environment. You know, everybody has the same technology. And if you give them that capability on their phone, they know how to, to do something with it. At the same time, um, I would say that what a big company has in terms of what I would call digital blockers are are slightly different than what a startup has. So one is culture. And every big company, you know, suffers from, you know, NIH, DIY, and DN. Not invented here syndrome, do it yourself, do nothing. But those three things are the competitors to innovation. And if you can't sort of get beyond those and make the company, you know, embrace this new thing and decide to participate rather than NIH or DIY or do nothing, you, 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 can't, you can't make the shift. That's why those, those my, digital migrants are important to the translation and the adoption. I think the second thing is leaders at the, you know, the first level, the second level, the third level of an, any company need to message and have actions tied to strategic desires. So they can't just say, well, that's somebody else's let them message it, or it's just the CEO. It's got to be done at the business leader level and one level down. 
where they say, look, we are all in on digital. We're going to do this. Here's our play. The, business, uh, the third blocker I see is business models. Great technology without clarity on the customer delivery model and pricing can't win. And inevitably in big companies where they often miss is not the, the talent and the technology. It's that the, the startups often are willing to get delivery models and pricing and a focus on the customer that just is unbeatable. And that's what big companies should be able to do better because they have better insight in theory. And then lastly is the funding models. Um, in big companies, there's often a peanut buttering of funding across every initiative, or there's too many initiatives. Whereas what, what happens in a startup is the venture capitalist is a great partner because they come in and say, you know, I'm going to give you this money and I'm going to, I, you know, I'm all in, but you're going to focus. You're going to show me that you're going to get there. How do you get those process, your own processes aligned to that has to be done. And I think that that's, you know, something that the, those four blockers, culture, leadership, business models, funding models, if you can get those blockers out of the way, and then you can get the right talent inside and outside the company working in tandem. And then you think about your end customer, your employees or your end customers enabled through their mobile devices. This is how a big company can win. Are there ways that you can effectively bridge uh, a different the different cultures? I, I mean, you just alluded to uh, a number of these blockers and, and approaches to essentially you know, dividing the, the culture, I guess, into... You know, having the you have the digital natives who who kind of get where you're going to go, the digital migrants. But but when you deal with with areas like engineering, for instance, in uh, industrial technologies, there are very different philosophies of of product development and and go to market than information yeah. technologies, of course. And and of course, you're, it's it's a it's a very different sales philosophy when you're selling a you know a capital asset or a product with a maintenance model versus you know a, a an x or an everything is a service uh, you know how do you how, how do you think about ways that you know a, a company can bridge uh d distinct cultures you know while preserving what's best about uh about yeah. each one yeah you know every every big company was and it was and is an innovator in the spaces they serve uh, the discomfort comes with the digital technology, which is a complete foundational change to what they've done, right? So, you know, if you go into traditional material sciences or, uh, you know, new construction techniques, et cetera, every one of these existing businesses has been an innovator. <laughs> that's what's made them so successful. Uh, that's what's made those engineering cultures so successful. So, I think what uh, I think where the the challenge comes, in my view, going back to the blockers, is that often what digital is not just the technology; it's a business model. And I make money a certain way, right? I'm a big company. I sell this product, and I make X margin on this product, right? sell this product and I sell this service and the service actually may be where the money's made, but it's all physical services. Whereas what we're often saying is, Hey, the way you're making money is going to have to change. And that's where it gets uncomfortable because the way we operate in engineering is set up to a funding model 
that's based on a business model. And, and once you disrupt the business model and funding model, that's when people start to say, this won't work, or you don't understand how we make money. And, and because at that point, they're concerned how, you know, what if it doesn't succeed? And I think that that's really the challenge uh, is, is, is the, the business of funding model be very disruptive. And that's, by the way, why startups love it, because they go, hey, the business models are very disruptive. Hey, I can undo this. And that's what you've got to focus on. I actually found the, you know, all, you know, big companies, their people are, they're, they're very bright. They're as bright as, as anybody anywhere. They're uh, innovative as anybody anywhere, but they tend to be very practical around how they make their money. And unless you are able to help to educate and bridge the business model and funding models and show a transition, even in a disruptive, you've got to show a transition. Which the transition could be, I will operate these two businesses separately. But you, you've got to be, you, you've got to go at that. And you just got to realize that it's going to be a challenge because you are uh, disrupting the status quo, which has been successful. And, and you can't, you have to respect that success. And I think the minute you don't, you just say, Hey, you're, you just don't understand. You can't beat it. But the minute you say, look, uh, you know, we're going to have an honest conversation and try to, uh, we're going to try to drive this change. You know, that's, you, you've just got to take on that hard work. And that then finally, I just say it's an education process. And unless you're up to educating, um, you know, you can't make your way through it. Uh, that's why a startup can win because they can, they don't have to deal with the transition. And in a big company, you have no choice but to deal with the transition. I'd love to get, get your thoughts on the you know the transition that 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 you were uh, at the at the center of it at GE, particularly around uh, around predicts the you know the the process of building out the platform and and mapping it to solutions that were uh, that complemented the existing businesses. Um, you know, you were you were creating. I mean, GE Digital uh, in, in a sense had a uh, had a had a, a much broader mission than uh, you know than the than the specific you know business lines. Uh, I mean, it, it, interests you know would reach even though I think you could you could say that that it was almost unlimited the the potential there. But I would love to get your your thoughts about the considerations of some of the decisions behind you know the the decision to build a platform and uh, you know how you worked with the you know, the different business units and. And you know what what you learned during that process as you were really defining a really a brand new market. Yeah. So you know, I think you brought up two things: the idea of a platform. Look, I, I think you know everyone realizes that you you know in in every market there are plat you know there are platforms and platform platform can mean a ton of things. You know, uh, you know to an infrastructure provider, the platform. Is that enabling technology, you know, cloud platform, let's say, like AWS or Google Cloud or Azure. Um, those are those are one form of platforms. But you know, it, it, you just go at Amazon. Another form of a platform is they have a platform for retail. 
Um, you you look at Uber, they have a platform for transportation or taxis or depends on how you want to you want to look at it. So you've got platforms at multiple levels. And I think that the couple of things you know that I've learned through this is that getting your platform right at the right level for your business is in, incredibly important. And that you you've got to make sure that you're at the right level of the stack for your platform. So for uh, some people, that right level is that infrastructure level of being the cloud provider. Um, you know, for a company like uh, uh, GE or, or uh, you know, any industrial firm, you know, I think that you really are at a higher level. You've got to be more at that application layer where uh, more akin to where, you know, the Amazon retail uh, is at, where you're providing uh, outcome-based uh, business services. Um, and, and, you know, the, as I said, the first transition in the market was predictive maintenance is, is worth a lot of money in, in the entire industrial world. And, um, you know, it's, uh, that's an important place to be. So I think the first thing, you know, that every company needs to do is make sure that they're really clear on the, plat- the level of the platform they're at and, uh, and at the right level. And then, by the way, you know, you build on other people's platforms to get to your platform, and you just got to get comfortable with that as well. You don't need to build everything yourself. In fact, building everything yourself is is the wrong thing to do. So I think that, uh, you know, two key lessons. What is, you know, make sure your platform is aligned to your customers and what you're trying to achieve with those customers. Build on everybody else's platform. And be careful you're not, uh, you know, you're not uh, at the wrong level. I think, uh, and, and, you know, I think, you know, just giving a GE credit, uh, a lot of credit, where they've taken uh, uh, Predix and APM and, and it's been, uh, you know, it has been an incredible journey. And, uh, again, you know, I said it before, I obviously deeply admire what that company has is, is uh, established here, especially since they were early on and they created the market. And you got to give credit where credit is due. Um, the second, uh, I think, thing, um, uh, you know, you know, around this is not just the, the platform, but you know, it's what I, what you said. It's knowing your your businesses and um, and and you know, so the the diversity, uh, you know, of of the the businesses um, across GE is, is is an interesting challenge because not everyone. Their business has the same problem. So uh, knowing which problems you're solving uh, is important. And in, in the end, you can't be a platform that's everything to everybody. I guess you can if you're like a cloud platform. But that's, you know, as an industrial firm, you've got to be focused on what you're trying to do. And it goes back to what I said before. You've got to have the, the digital ambassadors, the digital migrants, those folks in businesses who are essentially owning this. The businesses... Are, are are critical to being, uh, you know, first class players in this, owning it, your best partners, um, and, and I don't care what company you're at. If you're if you're not figuring out how to embed it within your existing businesses, then it becomes it slows down. On the other hand, if you try to embed it with your existing businesses, it slows down because you've got a lot of people to convince and cajole and work with. That's just the nature of it. And if you don't choose to lean into that. Um, 
you'll just find you can't be as successful. So get your platform right at the right level. Know what problems you're trying to solve. Make sure you know who your customer is and that customer, that's a problem they want solved. That's a value proposition they need. Realize you can't do it all yourself and align yourself into your existing businesses as effectively as you can, realizing that the nature of human beings, the nature of organizations is one of, of very difficult to embrace and adopt. That's why big companies often aren't able, that's the innovator's dilemma. But at the same time, those who conquer the innovator's dilemma, the scale of a big company allows them to win in a way that a startup can't. So I'd say that's the, 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 the downside is trying to do that. The upside is once you've done it, it's, it's an unbeatable combination. You know, no doubt. And, you know, when you look at the initial uh, expectations around, uh, you know, connected industry and industrial Internet of Things, and uh, we say we go back to sort of 2013 or 2014, I'd love to get your sort of a higher a higher level view of the industry where there were some fairly, uh, I would say, optimistic expectations that we'd see. A, we'd see a big ramp. This is a lot of you know, a lot of this was embedded into Wall Street. Uh, expectations that the industrial IoT would see this massive inflection point, and I, I think uh, what happened—it's—it became a lot more deliberate. But you know, I'd love to get your perspective on the uh, what became a disconnect between, I would say, more aggressive uh, adoption expectations, you know, and the and the down on the ground realities of really driving yeah. transformation across more, pretty pretty sophisticated industries. Yeah, well, you know, for big companies, their customers are often existing big companies, too. They're not startups. And so, the, you know, if you think of what, uh, in my perception of, you know, AWS's first set of customers were startups, right? Not big existing firms. But as they, they developed, you know, their business, then they moved into the big existing firms who found it easier to embrace the technology and now, you know, you're at a point where everybody, you know, nobody says, hey, cloud is too risky. Um, but when you're talking about your customer base being large companies, they're no different than you. You know, there are innovators within it. There's a desire to make that shift. They know they've got to deal with what I talked about before, the productivity, et cetera. Um, and, but the hard part is that you've got to be able to talk to those customers, unleash your customers. And, it doesn't matter what company I've been at in my 35-year career. What I've always found is the people who are selling to the customers are deeply afraid of the new technology. This goes back to everything I've ever done because they know how they're going to sell the existing technology. They know what the risks are. They know, you know how to make their way through it so that it's successful. New technologies if it doesn't go well, has a, has the opportunity to disrupt their relationship with their customer. So when you talk about, you know, not the in, just the internal usage, but the sale to the outside, you just got to realize that your customers are the same as you. They're, there's innovators in there. They have desires. On the other hand, there's the core existing, let's not mess this up sales team making the sales want not to mess it up in their relationship. So you've got to, again, lean into 
the fact that you've got to go to these customers, show value. You've got to make sure the first ones go well. And, and then you've got to figure out how to scale. And, you know, I think that the, the, uh, what we're in is the period, if you look at it, all of these things take a 10-year journey. And that journey to get through that is that the first few years, you've got to get your first customers right. And then you start to build. And by the way, I would say the industrial internet, you know, the IoT market is entering its maturity phase. We're seeing predictive maintenance and the ability to use data as, you know, part of everybody's strategy. Nobody, nobody's questioning it. And I, and I can tell you, you know, I saw the customer shift from why are you doing this to how are you doing this to how am I doing it over the last five years? And, and so, you know, my belief is we are seeing that um, we've, we've crossed the chasm, if you will, on IoT, and now we're into the phases of adoption. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's just the natural phasing of things that we're seeing. I, I think that's it's really interesting that you know as you as you you point out that certain industries do need to move at a more deliberate pace. I, uh, I'd love to hear a bit more about the work that you're doing at your current company. Could you talk about some of the potential that you see for the con, you know the construction and real estate industry and and uh, what you're what what you're looking at? Sure. You know, I think that. Again, I think it's uh, it's an industry in in that's undergoing transformation. And if you think about um, you know how we're how we construct uh, you know, and it goes beyond buildings, how we construct buildings or how we construct a a precinct, how we do urbanization. You know, we, the world is going through a real shift, right? Uh, transportation, mass transit. Uh, urban living, people moving into the cities, uh, expecting greater sets of services. We see a movement from where people, you know, the retiree communities and how that's changing. What we're seeing is a sense of urbanization and community that is very different than what, what we thought about building things in the past. So you got that one trend going on. I think the second trend is certainly people uh, more cognizant of the idea of, uh, you know, the greening of how we how we construct, you know, sustainability. Um, you know, you have that going on. I, I think the other thing is, you know, we also are starting to see a world where uh, the way we generate energy is changing and, you know, buildings are becoming more the center point of where a lot of the generation is. I mean, how do you use rooftop space? For solar, um, you know, and, and so on. So what we're seeing is a change in all of these uh, these kind of things happening simultaneously, which changes the way you design uh, your your let's say environments. And I think you know, there's, nobody's making more land, and you know, the the best most uh, constructive pieces of land, you need to come in and find the optimal use of that, the optimal use of, of making it a, a, a great place for people to live, work, play, and so on. So as you think about it, everything from how we design the space and think about how people move 
through it, how people live in it, how we're sustainable, to how we construct it and the kinds of materials. The, um, you know, for example, at, at Len Lease, um, you know, they're building uh, high-rise uh, buildings now, not in concrete, but in wood, because wood technology is changing that allows you to do, you know, uh, great structures out of wood components at levels you didn't do before. And, uh, and I'm just watching, a, a, you know, a building go up in, in wood, you know, outside my office, a high rise. And it, it's incredible to see it in wood, uh, which provides a lot of benefit as well. So you're seeing these kind of shifts occur and the kind of demands people are putting on these buildings. So when you think about it, that is going to have a digitization effort, a manufacturing effort. We'll see the shift over time in construction to where the design will move from being a 3D design to a digital twin. And that digital twin will not just be a drawing, but it'll be a living, breathing model that goes from the designer to the construction manager into the building operator. Allowing and that model will continue to grow to where it's an accurate representation, which allows you to do predictive analytics on how to get better energy, how to operate the building better, how to provide better services to your to your people who are living and working there. And and so one is I think digital twins are going to play a big role here. I think the second thing that we're going to see in this is that we're going to see a movement from uh, you know full bespoke construction into manufacturing-based construction. We're already seeing startups in this area that are trying to do, you know, you construct the, you know, the skeleton at least, if not most of the building offsite, and then you put it together. The way as kids, we always imagine Lego blocks, which is really hard. So I think we're at the early stages of the manufacturing in, in buildings and construction. I think the last thing is, you know, the IoT, uh, I, I already see that in, I saw some, some buildings in Singapore that it's amazing the use of IoT with cameras, and smart trash cans, and, and everything else that allow us to just live a cleaner, better, safer, more interesting life. So we're going to see more IoT technology for sure as, um, you know, table stakes in every design. And then all of this data coming in is going to change, again, how we operate those buildings. So, you know, we're at the early stages of what is a 20-year transformation in this industry. You know, I, I, the, well, what I see Len Lee's doing in some of these buildings in their, you know, they're really innovative buildings. It's quite fascinating. And, um, but I think that it's, it's going to be enabled through those technologies, I said. Cornerstone of building a building, IoT will be in there, digital twins will be in there, uh, big data, machine learning. Uh, we're going to see a lot more edge compute, everything connected. But the, the way we're going to judge the success of that is, is that building cleaner? Is it more sustainable? Is it cheaper to operate? Is it more efficient? Does it always work and never go down? You know, those kind of things are going to be the outcomes we get. And people are willing to pay for those things. But the technology is just now coming to the forefront. And the industry is just now starting to engage. And that's why I kind of I like this industry. It's, it's really in, its, in, the, in the early innings of, 
of getting started. Well, you've you've really just alluded the 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 breadth of outcomes that can uh, can be accomplished with these advanced with advanced technologies in an industry that's uh, you know where a lot of processes and techniques really haven't haven't changed much in in decades. So I, I really appreciate your insights there. Um, one one final question, Bill, which is uh, that I always like to to listen. Or I like to to ask our uh, our, our guests is uh, whether you, if there's a if there's a recommend a resource or or a book recommendation you might be able to share for for our listeners. Yeah, you know, well, there's a ton of them, and uh, one I I got I I saw the author speak, and uh, and then uh, you know I read the book, and I think it. It made me really think differently about this idea of scaling, and um, and and the, the author took the perspective of startups or what what he calls upstarts, and uh, but I think it I I looked at it and said hey how do I apply it to a big company and I think there's a lot of good lessons and it's called unscaled uh, and it's Hemant uh, 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 Tanesia is the uh, the author. And I really think it talks about how AI can disrupt every every industry. So uh, that would be the the one most recently that had a lot of impact on my thinking. That's a that's a great recommendation. I I'm not familiar with it, and I'm absolutely going to put it into my uh, in, into my into my book list, my reading list. So, but anyway, uh, Bill, it's it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you. Uh, your insights and, and experience are uh, are invaluable, and, and we really appreciate the uh, the time you've taken to share. Again, uh, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners, and we have been speaking with Bill Rue, who is uh, CEO of Digital Business at, at Lendlease. And and Bill, I want to thank you uh, once again for for taking the time to uh, to share your insights and experience once again. All right, thanks, Ed. It's been a real pleasure. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners with an episode of our Digital Leaders series. Please check our website at momenta.partners for archived versions of prior podcasts and webinars, as well as resources to help with your digitization journey. 